Well, now this morning we're going to uh, start looking at uh, this book of, of Nehemiah. And um, uh, let me tell you about uh, a situation that Julia and I were in just a few weeks ago. It was a remarkable affair. It was an Asian wedding um, in deepest Suffolk. Uh, it was happening uh, in, um, in Ipswich. There were 300 guests, at least 290 of them were Bangladeshi, um, come from all over the UK. Uh, there's a family that we've got to know very well. They're our, they're, in a sense, they're our closest non-church friends um, in the town where we are, Bangladeshi um, family. Well, this, um, this occasion religiously was Islamic, Culturally, it was Sileti. Silet is that um, is that bit of Bangladesh up, up there. This is the whole of the uh, of of the country. But as I say, it was um, quite a remarkable affair. We knew it would be culturally very different and religious very religiously very different. We know the bride's family well enough to know that they are attached to their Sileti culture, um, and the invitation had made that pretty clear too because the invitation included all sorts of information you'd not get in a standard British wedding invitation. Names and addresses in the UK weren't a surprise, uh, but we had the lineage on the invitation of both sets of parents, their home state uh, in Bangladesh, their home district in Silet, and uh, their home village in Silet. This was a migrant wedding with roots identified there in the northeast of Bangladesh. Most of those presents came from that um, small, albeit populous, area. These people know where they're from. They've been here 20, 30, 40 years, some of them, but they know still where they're from, like I'm a North Yorkshireman. Their kids getting married had lived all their lives here, and their friend, they and their friends sound entirely British when you speak to them, Essex, London, whatever. But they know, they know, those young people know where their Bangladeshi roots are. They are deeply embedded in their culture, their migrant culture. And it was like that for Nehemiah, who served in Artaxerxes' palace. He was thoroughly integrated into Iranian Persian life. He was a trusted, loyal servant of the Persian king, Artaxerxes I, who was around kind of four to 500 uh, BC. He was the one who served the king's wine. He had to check it for poison. Uh, there were always plots around in the world of the day and part of the security details job and there's a sense in which 
uh, Nehemiah was part of that detail, was to make sure the king's food and wine were safe. So um, here he'd come with these, the goblet of wine for the king, and uh, in the presence of the king, he'd have to take a little bit first to make sure it was okay. You know, a bit like sometimes happens in a restaurant, you order a bottle of wine, uh, the waiter comes round and pours a little bit for your wife, and she tastes it first, makes sure it's not poisoned, and then you know you're okay. That's how it goes, isn't it? Well, um, well, maybe it doesn't for you. Um, but, um, you know, it was that, it was that kind of, of deal. So uh, there it was. It was safe to be drunk. He was part of the royal security detail and probably had responsibility for some aspects of court finances as well. Why those two jobs went together in that day, I don't know. Maybe it was because the wine cost so much. I don't think so. But for all that he was so closely embedded in the culture of the day, in the Persian culture of the day, here he was, a migrant, a Jewish guy, in a context of considerable political ferments. There had been attempts against um, uh, Persian rule and... Um, and the Persian kings had to choose very carefully who they trusted. Nehemiah was a trusted migrant Jew. And our story starts when this migrant royal servant heard news from home. <coughs> Bad news. It would be a bit like our Bangladeshi friends hearing that there had been another one of these massive floods in their homeland or something like that and their hearts go out uh, despite the fact that um, uh, Nehemiah's people hadn't fully inhabited their homeland for the best part of 140 years because um, the date now is probably around about 445 BC and the backstory is that 140 years earlier, Jerusalem had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar II. The Jews had mostly been taken into exile in the, uh, in the uh, Babylonian Empire, which had subsequently itself been taken over by the Persians. That's how we get to the state of play uh, here where Nehemiah is. Some 13 years earlier, attempts had been made by a group of returning Jewish exiles uh, to restore the walls of Jerusalem. You can read about that in the book of Ezra. But those attempts had um, pretty much been thwarted by tribal groups in the area uh, around Jerusalem who really didn't want to see the Israelites being able to resettle Judah and Jerusalem. Well, Hanani, Nehemiah's brother, had been to visit the homeland. And uh, when he comes back, uh, we're told in verse 2 that Nehemiah questioned him. So what's going on at home? Tell me, what's the news? Well, he'd come back with dismaying, with dismaying news. The wall's broken down, brother. The gates have been burned. Our brothers there are in great trouble and disgrace. There is that language of, of disgrace that gets used there in verse 3. And of course we need to realise that uh, theirs was a shame culture. We hear a lot about shame cultures today, don't we? And theirs was a shame culture. 
And what a shame it was to have, for some of their people to have gone back to Jerusalem claiming that Yahweh, the Lord, their God, would have his hand upon them. And yet here they are in deep trouble with their work apparently fruitless. It was a great shame upon them and their people. Well, how's Nehemiah going to respond? He's probably never been in Jerusalem. He's in a senior position. He's not a young man, but he's probably never been to his homeland. Like, um, like some of the Bangladeshis that we know have grown up in this country. Uh, we, we know uh, mothers who will not take their daughters back to Bangladesh for fear that their uncles will marry them off when, when they're there. They, they don't feel safe about going back and, uh, and, and, and so on um, until they're married. So, um, so there, there are people in this country who, who, in a sense, you might think, well, well, why would they have any significant interest in that part of the world? But but these things flow deep in their bloodstreams, that sense of connection. And it was the same for Nehemiah. Despite never having lived there, he is deeply rooted at an emotional, and more than at an emotional level, at a, at a spiritual and heart level. He's deeply rooted in Jerusalem. And so we're told that he begins to mourn. Verse 4, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. It was a shame on him and his people. It was, um, uh, it was a shame on the name of the Lord too. I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He was deeply concerned. What I want us to see this morning is what we need to do with deep concerns. How should we respond when we have deep concerns? There are things that we should have a concern about, aren't there? Our land, our country. Our country as it turns away from the moral values which were so rooted in a Christian worldview. Our country, as it redefines marriage, plays fast and loose uh, with the sanctity of life. We're grateful, very grateful, that the House of Commons um, voted against assisted dying, but we're concerned about all sorts of life issues, abortion, the use of embryo technology, and so on. Where's it going? And it, and it does our head in, doesn't it? You know, how, how do we make sense of this? When you've, got, um, when you've got an old lady living at home with you, who's one of whose greatest difficulties uh, is macular degeneration, and there's, a, there's an offered resolution for that, but it arises out of, out of embryo research. How, how do we... We find ourselves, let's be honest about it, we do find ourselves torn by these realities. Distressed, dismayed, not sure how to respond. find ourselves with deep concerns about the state of family life and homes around us. 
it's one of the issues that we face in the world of, of mission, that we've had to think much more carefully when people are offering themselves for service with us about the, 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 the home background from which they've come and the impact of that on them. And uh, their resilience arising out of that um, because, of, because of some of the things that they have experienced in, in life. Or we find that when you transport people to a, another culture where there are pressures that they've not experienced before, that some of the pressures that they've experienced perhaps very young in life bubble to the surface again in particular ways and we want to make sure that people are ready. And uh, as our culture um, has increasing problems we're just aware at all sorts of levels, aren't we? Uh, when, you, when you look at, um, uh, at folk who've not been well-parented themselves and the challenges for them of, of parenting their children and so on. Uh, some of you who are involved in education or in, or in other caring services, you, you know about this. You see this every day. And these things are deep concerns to us, aren't they? Sometimes they so overwhelm us that... That, that, that our sense of, of, of dismay just can't keep up with, with all that we're seeing and our minds start to close down and it's kind of, well, it's life, isn't it? But these things are painful. <coughs> the walls, if I can put it this way, of our cities, of our communities, the things that, that we would expect to be points of safety have often got broken down. The gates into people's minds have often been burned. And so we, we have a, a, a real epidemic of, of, of internet pornography. And the reality is that many, many, many people have been exposed to things that a generation or two ago wouldn't have been the case and that create challenges for them into the future as well. We should have deep concern about the state of the churches grateful for every shining light but there are many churches that are dying or have gone and the frank reality is that the vast majority of the population of our country is quite untouched by gospel lights moral defection amongst church leaders even in evangelical <coughs> churches is dismaying divisions amongst the people of god fighting each other rather than the enemy of our souls our our lack of gospel penetration into our communities where people live and die without really hearing of Christ. We, we're right to have deep concerns, aren't we? Well, what, what do we do? Very quickly, we're going to see what Nehemiah does with deep concerns. Because I don't want us to go away depressed. <laughs> but you see, Nehemiah needed to hear the story from Hanani, didn't he? He, he, nothing was going to happen unless he faced up to realities. 
And as you think about moving forward as a church and um, delighted to hear that you, you, know, you are making plans to move forward and how can, how can gospel witness uh, grow in this area? It's not, just about, it, it's, it's not just about the church getting bigger, is it? It's about something being done about the sin sickness that is all around us. It's, it's about a response to realities that are deeply concerning, isn't it? As, as God's people, as churches, we, we're not just like commercial ventures that want to grow so that the bottom line gets bigger. We're, 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 we're really about responding to heart concerns. So we face them. And here's the thing that we do with them. First of all, yes, we do what Nehemiah did. We weep and mourn. We don't hide from realities. Nehemiah is very clear that he was praying during this time of this period of mourning, but the emphasis first is on this, that he allowed himself to feel and express deep emotion about the state of things back in Jerusalem. He poured out his heart to God in deep sorrow. And there's a place for that, for us as believers, you know. Now, I fear that this is rather deeply countercultural for our society, but also within our churches as well. Uh, our son Phil has some strong views on Christian worship, and I agree with him on some of them. Uh, but one of the things he says which I think is profoundly true, but uncomfortable, is this. That there is far too little lament in our worship. There's often far too little lament in our worship in comparison to the balance of scripture <coughs> uh, someone has counted up that about a third of the psalms are what you could call lament psalms psalms that look at reality and say oh god that's awful and not in any blasphemous way either oh lord that that is awful We have a whole book in uh, the Old Testament that's called Lamentations. And when we turn to the New Testament, we find Jesus weeping. We find him lamenting over Jerusalem. We find Paul lamenting over the lostness of his own people, the Jews. There's a proper time for lamenting and expressing deep sorrow. And as I say, this is deeply countercultural. It runs even contrary to Christian culture very often. We have to be happy. We have to be in the mood and mode of praise and rejoicing. Well, yes, yes, there are lots of things to praise and rejoice about. But the reality is that there's plenty over which we should lament. Jesus saw the crowds harassed and helpless and we're told he had compassion on them. And the language is that of being deeply moved. It's strong language. It's, it's gut-wrenching what he sees. 
was a moment of sorrow over the condition of those he saw. But then he moves on. Remember? Jesus moves on from that moment of sorrow. He calls his disciples to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into the harvest field. And that's where uh, Nehemiah goes next. He prayed. And I want to see how he prayed. The first thing is this. He approached God on the basis of who he is and in particular on the basis of his power and covenant love verse 5 O lord god of heaven great and awesome god who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey him let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants the people of israel The starting point is with God. <laughs> so he's seen the situation, but the starting point of his response is with God. And God's greatness, his power, great and awesome God. And with his covenant love, promised love. As we work through Nehemiah, there's a sense in which what I hope you'll be doing is thinking about what God might do amongst you, what God might do amongst us here. You're, you're thinking about, about buildings and stuff like that, and that's what Nehemiah had to think about, but the, the, the issue was bigger than buildings, actually. But Nehemiah saw that he needed to focus first on God. When we're thinking about the work of the Lord, the great crying need for his work to be done, we're not to let the desperate needs around us so totally dominate our response that we don't first go to God and acknowledge his love and his greatness, and his power. The starting point for our response has to be in God himself. Great, awesome, loyal to his own love, faithful to his own promises. He's the responsive God who listens and sees. That's where we start. I remember years ago listening to a man called Elwyn Davis as he would lead in prayer, a leader in Wales. And uh, he would often, as he began to pray, he would often pause for a long period of time. Sometimes you kind of think, when is, when, when is he going to break the silence? But you could almost hear him in those moments of silence, taking in who it was he was approaching. We need to do that. If you as a church think about where the Lord is leading you on this adventure of faith, as you focus on being equipped to reach the community around, pray and do this. First recall who God is. And then he, he approaches God in humble repentance. Do you notice that here? 
Ah, he says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. He says, look, Lord, I know that our situation is a result of our sin. For he goes on in verse 8, you said to Moses, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Lord, I, I know, he says, we have sinned and our situation is a result of that. And it's not just the people of 140, 150 years ago or 13 years ago that he has in view at that point. He says, it's me, it's me, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer and forgiveness. You see. He doesn't point a finger out there. He acknowledges the depth of need in himself. I wonder if you've done that. It's me who's a sinner. Oh, Lord, I need your grace. And then he approaches God on the basis of God's promises. You notice what he says, verse 8? Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses. Now, look, if you've got a memory as bad as mine, it would, be, it would sound a bit rich to be saying to God, oh, by the way, God, have you forgotten? <laughs> I don't actually think that is quite what he's saying. I need two or three people to keep reminding me of things. I've got one person who works for me whose job it is to remind me of things, and I've got a wife um, who reminds me of things because she knows it's necessary, um, including some things that are sometimes a bit uncomfortable uh, that she reminds me of, but you know how it is. Um, I, I, I forget. I, I forget um, just from incompetence and sometimes from outright sinfulness, I, I forget. And God's not like that. He's neither incompetent nor sinful. He doesn't have a bad memory. And so Nehemiah isn't saying, oh, by the way, have you forgotten God? No, no. What he's saying is, oh Lord, please call to your memory and act upon the promises you made for this moment. That's what he's saying. For that promise is this. It says, yes, I will scatter you among the nations, but verse 9, if you return to me and obey my commands, then even, your eg then, even, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. He's praying the promises of God. He's doing what the New Testament describes as praying in the Spirit. He's taking the Spirit-inspired word and he's praying what God the Holy Spirit had said. And he says, Lord, you promised to restore your people to your place as they return to you with all their hearts. To the place you've chosen as a dwelling place for your own name. I'm going to come back to that. Um, later this morning but for now here's the point he prays the promises of God and then he applies them because he has an action in mind he says Lord please grant me success in the presence of this man you kind of don't quite know which man he's talking about at this point do you but it goes on to say I was cupbearer to the king little hint and chapter 2 opens up 
uh, from there. We're going to look at that in a moment. Where are you individually? Is this an area, is, 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 there, is there an area where you have a sense that the Lord is calling you to step out in faith? Pray. Ask him, help you in that. As a church, as you take bold steps, pray. <coughs> Gather for prayer. Pray together. <coughs> you know, pray when you bump into each other and you're having coffee. Pray. Are you facing challenges in family life? Pray. I remember one of our children years ago, his school teacher was at her wit's end with very naughty boys in her class and she was shedding a tear or two. <laughs> it's not ideal, is it? But it happens. And um, Phil just um, went alongside of her and he said, um, Boris Park Infant School, Mrs. Wilson, he said, When things are hard at home, we pray. She told Julia that. Is, is that a sufficient habit for you and your family? That even a little one <coughs> would know what you do? It's, it's you know, stop and pray. The kids know that's what you do. Stop and pray. You have a sense that you should take an opportunity to speak with a neighbour or a family member about the Lord. Pray, pray for success. <coughs> well, then, look, we need to finish. And here's. Let's pass them back on. There you go. He, he has responded with sorrow. He's prayed in the way that we've seen. And then he acts. Well, actually, <laughs> the Lord acted. Chapter 2, beginning of chapter 2. Uh, he's there. Short time later, uh, the wine's been brought in. And here he is. It's his job to take the wine, give it to uh, the king, Artaxerxes. And the Lord opens up the opportunity for Nehemiah to speak. He, is, as I say, he was going about his duties as normal, but Artaxerxes knew that he wasn't in his normal mood. I guess that maybe Nehemiah was normally a sunny kind of character, you know, would come in with the wine goblet. Here you are, your majesty. It's very good today. I've just tasted it. But Nehemiah's unhappy, downcast, in the presence of the king. And the king remarks on it. Now, Nehemiah was rather fearful, we're told here. I was very much afraid. It didn't do to be in a bad mood with the king. So maybe he was going to be in trouble. But... 
Though he was afraid, he spoke. He had prayed and he had asked the Lord to grant him favour in the presence of the king. So he took courage in both hands. Actually, as you know, it probably wasn't courage or Heineken. It was probably wine. Well, it was wine. We're told that. Um, But um, uh, uh, he spoke up nonetheless. The thing is, he says, it's my homeland. My people are in deep trouble. And here's the amazing thing. The king says, what do you want me to do? What would you like me to do? Wow. What an answer to prayer. It's one of those heart-stopping moments, isn't it? Can you imagine Nehemiah being there? (laughs) What do I say now? And he shoots up an arrow prayer. We're told that. Verse 4. Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. Verse 5. Shoots up an arrow prayer and speaks boldly. Not boldy. Boldly. Now would be a good time, Lord, for you to answer that prayer. I've been praying these recent days. And he says, let me go and rebuild my ancestral city. How long will it take, says the king. So he sets a time scale. He must have been thinking about this, mustn't he? He'd already got a plan in his head. It's very clear from later on that this guy's a real strategist. So it was there already in his mind. He knew what it might take. He'd been thinking about it. So he didn't have to go and say, well, you know, um, give me a few days and I'll do a... I'll do a plan. <laughs> he's, he's, he's ready. He's, he's got an answer. And he's ready to go. And he says, and um, maybe, maybe, O oh king, you could give me some letters of authority. Because he knows from previous occasions that political authority is likely to be necessary. You know, planning permission and that kind of stuff. And um, maybe some materials. He's on a roll now. <laughs> he's like, well, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. Might as well ask for, you know, some of what I need as well. And then he gets even more than he asks for. Do you notice that? The, uh, the gracious hand of my God was upon me. And uh, the king granted my request, so I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. These were the people who were likely to stand in the way of it. Ha. And then we get this little line. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. So he turns up with letters <laughs> and, a, and, a, and a cavalry battalion <laughs> and a bunch of officers. Wow. <laughs> That's kind of a bit of... Um, that, that's, that's, that's a result, isn't it? You know, some of you are looking for a result later on today, I know, but... <laughs> this is a result. Get this as we close. He sees great need. He 
He mourns over that. He's affected. He allows it to touch him. He goes to the king of heaven. And he goes to a pagan king. He goes to the one who has ultimate power. And he talks with someone who has temporal power as well. He goes to the second, confidence, because he's gone to the first. And the Lord grants him success. How will the Lord work amongst you? What will he do amongst you as a church as you move forward? Who will he use? Nehemiah was well connected into his local society, into his local culture. He found in Artaxerxes a, a kind of man of peace, a man who was willing to go with where God would take Nehemiah. A man of goodwill. Not, not, a, not a believer, in our terms, not a Christian, but, but a man who trusted him and was willing to help. He'd built that relationship over time. We need to find people like that in our communities. We, we need to be open, vulnerable with those kinds of folk. Well, this is, this is where we are. Would you be willing to help us? Not fearful that uh, we'll just always get rebuffed by the people of the world because maybe as trust has been built, they'll say, yeah, 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 that's okay. We can help make that happen. But above all, we friends need to be real with God, sorrow over the things around us, things that are desperate, sorrow over our own sin, and then cry to him to act on the basis of who he is and his great promises to act on behalf of his people and the honour of his name in this area. May God lead you forward as you survey the scene and respond to what you see. Let's just pray. Lord, we thank you for your words to us this morning, uh, how it comes to us with um, freshness and, uh, and reality uh, relating to the things that we face. We pray that you will lead us and guide us. And may we know you at work in your great, awesome power according to the promises of your word, that the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ might be transforming amongst us and amongst the community around. For your name's sake. Amen.